Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 8, produced 5 August 2015. This is the year of food and drink in Scotland, and there can be no more iconic Scottish dish than haggis. Traditionally, haggis is made from the lung, liver, and heart of the sheep. These are mixed with oatmeal, onion, and spices stuffed into a casing and boiled. Yet haggis is a dish that is either beloved or reviled, and sometimes simply horrifies people who hear it described for the first time. In a moment, haggis demystified here under the tartan sky. Here in Scotland, 2015 is the year of food and drink, a celebration of the country's outstanding natural larder and produce. From artisan cheeses and world-renowned whiskies to succulent seasonal berries and arbroath smokies, there's an abundance of delicious regional flavours round every corner. Discover the landscapes, people and culture that make our food heritage so unique and enjoy a feast of events and festivals throughout the year. Come and experience a true taste of Scotland. Fair fall, your honest sonsy face. Great chieftain, oh the pudding race. Aboon them all, you tack your place. Pinch, tripe or therm. Will I your worthy owe a grace as langs my arm? So begins the Address to a Haggis, written in 1787 by Scotland's national poet Robbie Burns. In Burns' lifetime, haggis was a common dish of the poor because it was cheap yet nourishing. Today, haggis is traditionally served as part of a Burns supper, a Scottish social event. But haggis is not just for Burns suppers. Haggis is available year-round in supermarkets in Scotland and comes in many varieties, including kosher and vegetarian. And today, haggis can be found as an ingredient in dishes as varied as burgers, pizza, tacos, and lasagna. However, the Scottish national dish is banned from import into the United States and has been since 1971. It can be made here, except sheep lung is not used and the casing is always artificial. Joining me under the tartan sky to help further demystify haggis is James McSween, third-generation co-owner with his sister Joe of McSween Haggis, a premier producer of haggis in Scotland. My first question to Mr. McSween, let's start with the basics. What is a haggis? What is a haggis? That's a really good question. Well, a haggis fundamentally is, is probably the most misunderstood in the world. As well as being Scotland's national dish, um, and a food that is available internationally, not necessarily still in existence, but um, you just need to go to some other 
countries around the world, and you will find something like haggis. So you can go to Poland and eat kashanka. You can go to uh, Iceland and eat slauter. You went to Norway, you could eat uh, lungimost. So there's there's a type of haggis that exists in some countries, but not in all. And haggis is is a very old dish. Haggis goes back to probably around about the time of the Romans, because haggis isn't really Scottish. Haggis either came to Scotland either via the Vikings or via the Romans. Now, the Romans were here, well, they left about 1,500 years ago. So they were before the the last two millenniums. So they came here 1,500 BC and left about 1,500 AD. Um, And that's potentially when haggis came, or it came via the Vikings back in the 14th century. So it's it's a pretty complicated product. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard question to answer. I realize that. <laughs> yeah, and and haggis in the in today's society is been made famous because of a poet Robert Burns, and he wrote about haggis, and he wrote about it in such a tongue in cheek way because. All the snobs of Edinburgh at the time were putting their nose down at Haggis, and he wrote this poem to a Haggis about how Haggis is perceived as a poor man's dish, but to be honest, it'll fill you up, and working-class men live on Haggis, and they they make Scotland Scotland because of eating Haggis. Um, So Robert Burns unfortunately died prematurely, and then nine men celebrated his his life the following year and had a burn supper where they ate haggis. Now, if those nine men hadn't decided that, actually, Robert Burns is a really good friend of ours and a now well-known poet, um, let's have this party, haggis might have just disappeared and would be like like some of these, these other countries that now no longer recognize what their haggis is, if you know what I mean. Yes. And, so I hope that does that answer your question. Yes, and, and you're talking about the uh, address to the haggis, um, yep. which of course is recited at uh, each and every burn supper, which is the tradition that you're mentioning that now is carried out uh, worldwide by a Scott diaspora on or as near to Ravi's birthday as as is possible. It's interesting, I think, to talk about haggis because it is one of several. Scottish icons that when you look into them, you find they really aren't Scottish. Um, For example, I did a piece, uh, an interview not long ago with a gentleman about whiskey, and it's often said that the Irish invented whiskey, but the Scots made it drinkable. And in researching a a coming interview I'm going to be doing with uh, Craig Monroe at Wallace Bagpipes, bagpipes, again, are iconic to Scotland, and yet they probably didn't originate in Scotland. And here we find haggis is the same. It, it is an iconic Scottish food. And as you say, there are varieties around the world, but most often associated with Scotland. And yet we're finding that it is not really a, an, an, it didn't originate in Scotland. That, well, that, that's what historians say. There's a woman called Clarissa Dixon Wright, and she's written a, a book about the origins of Haggis. And, and she was the one that revealed it might actually have been brought via the Vikings. Which is amazing, really, if you look back in Scots, Scots history. Um, you know, we've, we just grabbed hold of it with both hands because by 
the time when Robert Burns was alive, Scotland was eating a lot of haggis, and there's nothing more patriotic than a patriotic Scot. And, you know, Burns wrote a poem about it because he didn't like the posh folk of Edinburgh, you know, making fun at, at haggis, and he was making fun at them by writing that poem. And we've just grabbed it with both hands, and we now proudly say that, you know, haggis, the home of haggis is, is Scotland. And yeah, you could. I'm. I'm not sure about the origins of whiskey. Um, <laughs> you, you. You. You could be right. Well, uh, we probably shouldn't go down that road. <laughs> just to be safe. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I mean, but again, Scotch is one of those iconic products of Scotland, and certainly haggis is as well. Why is it? Do you think that that haggis has been so misunderstood? down through the ages, because at its root, am I correct in thinking, you, you called it uh, originally a, a poor man's dish, but in reality, it's simply a case of a crofter, a farmer, as we would say here in the States, making the absolute most use of his produce to feed his family. The fifth quarter, what goes into haggis is fifth quarter. So we've got two legs, two hind legs, two front legs, two hind legs, and then you've got all the other bits that are perfectly edible if you if you deal with them in the right way and butcher them correctly and cook them correctly. The innards are hugely tasty, very nutritious, and um, are a great source of, of protein. Now, if you take certain innards, because if we go back, really strip haggis right back to its roots, think about early preservation techniques for meat. You would salt it, you would dry it, you would cure it, you would cook it. Awful in that regard goes off really, really quickly. In refrigerated environments, it goes off quickly, but in unrefrigerated environments, you've got hours before it spoils. So you had to do something with it very quickly, and that is where we think, and historians think, that they took a stomach, a bit like making black pudding. When the animal was slaughtered, they waste nothing. They, they harvested the blood and turned it into black pudding stroke blood sausage. Haggis, again, it's a form of black pudding. They're just using the innards and cooking them, adding cereal, some herbs, spices, and using a natural bag, which would have been one of the stomachs, which would have been cleaned, and hey presto, you have haggis, the original boil-in-the-bag meal. <laughs> I had not thought of it in that sense. I, I love that uh, as the original boil-in-the-bag meal. Yeah, it, it's true. It, it is true. It's just it's, that, that's brilliant. I had never, I had never looked at it in that sense. And I love haggis. I, I've been to Scotland twice in the past year, and it was on my must-do list. You have to go to Scotland. You have to try haggis. And I found it quite enjoyable. And, and I'm amazed at, at so many of my friends here in the States who who turn up their nose, and it's because, I suppose, of the ingredients. And yet Americans, more probably than any other culture, gobble down goodness knows how many hundreds of thousands of pounds of what we call hot dogs over here. And yep. uh, and I was reading a, a story recently that said, you know, if you've had a hot dog in America, you have nothing to fear about eating haggis. And, and I would argue that the haggis is far more nutritional and has far better ingredients in it than does a hot dog. And yet Americans chow down on hot dogs traditionally um, at, at ball games yeah. and on holidays. And, and yet so many will turn up their nose at the idea of even of even tasting, sampling haggis. And I find that to be so terribly wrong. It's funny you should say that because recently I saw a cartoon in a in a newspaper and there's it was around about the time of the, the open in St Andrews and this guy is saying if you, you tried haggis said, Oh no, haggis isn't processed enough for me. 
And that that was his reply as to why he hadn't had Haggis. Oh, that just speaks volumes in very few words, I think. Yeah. Haggis, of course, as we've talked, was originally a, a traditional meal. It was the haggis, neeps, and tatties, and it was obviously a part of the celebration of uh, Rabbi Burns' birthday and the Burns suppers. But your sister, Joe, who is a co-owner of McSween Haggis with you, I understand, the third generation, right. uh, third generation family? We're third generation, yeah. Yeah. Well, she came along and created, uh, was it just about a year ago, a little book called The Haggis Bible. Now, Joe can't join us, but what can you tell me about The Haggis Bible, and what was the motivation behind that, bringing haggis out of just the uh, surroundings of the Burns Supper, I suppose? One of the reasons for the book is to show the versatility of haggis that Haggis can be used on its own as a, as a main meal with potatoes and turnip, um, or it can be used as a component in hundreds of meals and is hugely versatile and it crosses continents. So you could be having uh, haggis nachos to haggis ta uh, tacos to haggis lasagna, haggis spaghetti bolognese, um, haggis and baked potatoes. And that's just, that's a few. You know, it, it can, if you think we, you can use to, to use an American expression, ground meat, ground beef, we call it minced. If you can use minced meat in a dish, you can use haggis. So nachos, dead easy. Instead of making a, a beef chili to drop over your nachos, you just use haggis. Substitute ground beef, minced beef in a lasagna, um, cottage pie or shepherd's pie. Wherever there's minced meat, you can use it. A family favorite of mine is haggis beans on toast in a baked potato. It's quick. It's um, and it's convenient and it's very nutritious and as a part of a calorie controlled diet, it's great protein, carbohydrate and fiber in the oats. The book was to try and get across the versatility of it, but the book was also to show us that as as a food manufacturer, we come up with some really interesting and creative ideas as to how to have your haggis. And we we have this strap line on our products that says, trust us to be interesting. Um, <laughs> because if you follow us, we ask you to trust us, but we will show you some interesting ways of having haggis. We launched a, a, a burger, a, a beef burger um, in the spring. It's a haggis and beef burger. So we're using 75% uh, beef and 25% haggis with a bit extra haggis spice. This is the most succulent, juicy, tasty, well-spiced burger I have ever eaten. I eat a lot of burgers, but this, this thing's knockout. And this is the start of us being on this journey to, to become more versatile and, and come up with more creative and interesting ways to eat haggis. I want to talk with you about some of those new products. It's funny that you should mention right off the top of the head, you mentioned tacos and nachos, because having grown up in Texas, as I did, I grew up on what we call Tex-Mex food. And it's, oh, yeah. a, it's a Texas twist on traditional Mexican dishes. And when I was going to make my first visit to Scotland in April of last year, I had tickets to uh, see a play at the King's Theater in Edinburgh. And so I uh, asked some friends online for recommendations on a place to have uh, have dinner before the show or after the show. And one of my friends piped up immediately with a recommendation. And to my great surprise, it was a Tex-Mex place with a Scottish twist. And they did exactly what you're talking about. Instead of the ground yep. beef that we would find in enchiladas or nachos or tacos here in the U.S., it was all haggis-based. And I thought, what an incredibly brilliant idea. 
not only have you launched burgers, I understand you're taking haggis, McSween haggis is, that is taking it to an entirely new level with products like microwavable haggis? We brought that a few years ago. Um, so what we've done is we've taken our uh, tried and tested um, regular haggis, vegetarian haggis and black pudding recipes, and we have sliced them into small slices that go into a pack, which is then, the product is then encapsulated into microwavable cooking material. So when you buy these products, there's a little cardboard sleeve with all the, the mandatory information, the you know, the barcode, how to cook it and how to keep it, and some recipe suggestions. So you get rid of the, the cardboard sleeve, you put the pack in the microwave, and in about one minute, you have 130 grams of hot haggis, vegetarian haggis or black pudding. And this, this is the most convenient and versatile way to use our product. That It's 130 grams of haggis. It's ready in 60 seconds. There's no no fuss. There's no mess. There's no, you know, getting a can opener, you know, pair of scissors. It's dead easy. Then you peel, peel the, the top film off the base web and you throw it on your bit of toast or drop it on top of your baked potato or crumble it over your uh, tortilla chips. Microwavable haggis has been a great invention of ours. You see a lot of microwavable fish these days where you don't need to get your fingers dirty or they don't need a smell of fish because it, it's all the, the cooking's done when it's inside this this pack because it, it actually, as you microwave the product, the product's getting steamed as well as heated at the same time. So the, uh, it's very clever. Um, but we launched that in 2009 on haggis and then black pudding and then vegetarian haggis. But that now equates to over 15% of our sales. It's, it, was a, it was a huge new market to get into, convenience uh, market where people want to try and, it, and it's a very inexpensive way of picking up a pack of haggis, which will cost you pound, pound 50. And, you know, if you don't like it, well, I'm really sorry, but it's not a lot of money to, to spend to, to try haggis for the very first time. Is it fair to say that Haggis is, certainly because of the innovations from McSween Haggis, experiencing something of a, a renaissance in Scotland? Is it getting wider reception, the discovery or, or the recognition that it can be used in so many various ways as presented in the Haggis Bible? Is the perception of Haggis changing even there in Scotland where it is such a traditional dish? It's never been more popular. It's Haggis and black pudding, it, in essence, it's everywhere. It's widely used uh, in restaurants, in hotels, parts of canopies for functions. If you go to a nice restaurant, you get a, a moose-bouche before you start. There is a chance in Scotland that you'll you'll have a little knick-knack made with some haggis. Um, for example, black pudding and scallops. You know, that's a it's a match made in heaven. Fresh Scottish scallops seared in a pan on a slice of black pudding. Sensational. One of the products that I readily make at home is black pudding eggs benedict. So I ditch the ham, I substitute black pudding, and still use hollandaise sauce and toasted English muffin and just layer it up with a bit of black pudding. And it, it, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's just it's so versatile, it's unbelievable. And that's how I've likened it when I've tried to explain it to people here, to my friends, is, is it's basically, it's a spicy, to me, it's a spicy ground beef. That's exactly how I'd explain it. It's, it's obviously not beef, but that is its equivalent here in the States, and there are so many uses for that. And you're right, I found it on the menu in many occasions while I was in Scotland, 
one of the most notable was a wonderful dinner I had at Three Chimneys out on Skye, and a haggis pasty was a part of one of the many courses in that meal. And, and then, of course, I went to King's House Hotel and had the traditional haggis, neeps, and tatties in a drambouille sauce. And, oh, my God, was that delicious. <laughs> um, and I think it was the haggis, not the alcohol, that made it delicious. <laughs> at least I certainly hope so. Can you give us a little bit of a history about the company, how it's grown and changed and evolved uh, in the 62 years that it's been with us? Yeah. So um, we were founded in 1953 by my grandfather. My my forefathers actually came on my dad's side, came from the Isle of Skye. They left Skye because they were having a dispute with the, the laird. They wanted to build a road up to their croft, but the laird wouldn't let them. And this feud went on for quite a while, and they decided, right, we've had enough. We're leaving Skye. And then they came to Ratho, which is uh, near Edinburgh. And that was really the start of them being lowlanders rather than highlanders. Um, My grandfather was at school and the teacher had an approach from a business in Fife in London Links. They were looking for a boy to do an apprenticeship in bookkeeping. And my grandfather went to London Links and did his apprenticeship. Actually, the business was a butcher shop, and he, he learned to be a, a bookkeeper in a, in a butcher's business. And that was in the days where you did your apprenticeship. You lived with your employer, and you paid him digs while you served your apprenticeship. He finished his apprenticeship. He then moved to Edinburgh and then got a job in the butcher shop that he eventually ended up running, which was called William Orr's on George Street. Sadly, the building's no longer there. It's now a hotel. But this was a meat emporium. And he worked for a gentleman called Mr. Orr, who used to walk around the shop with a top hat and a frock coat, because that that was what owners did in those days. And Charlie, my grandfather, was in the business, and in any butchery business, we're a bit busy in the front shop, Charlie, can you come and help serve? And he quickly found himself doing more general management than, than uh, financial management. And he ended up Running the shop, he then became the general manager. And when Mr. Orr died, his daughter didn't want to keep running the business. Um, and she found somebody that wanted to buy the property, um, which was the the Scottish um, and Southern Electricity Board. And Charlie, my grandfather, was going to go and find a butcher's business and go and run another butcher's business and be a manager somewhere else. And Mrs. Goodrum uh, persuaded him to think about setting up on his own. And she lent him some money and what stock he needed from her at cost. And he set up his own shop in Brunsfield Place in 1953, still during rationing. They moved all the rationing books across from where he had been working to where he went to work um, over the course of a weekend. And then that was the start of Charles McSween. And that was back in, as I said, in 1953. And then the business has just grown. So we were a butcher game deal and poultry at that point and we'd always made haggis and black pudding and sausages because a butcher would make everything in his shop but it was a, a significantly smaller shop um, and then over the years until 1996 when we moved out of retailing the shop had just got bigger and bigger and we had several shops on the corner um, where we did all our manufacturing and by then in 1996 we were doing 235 tons of, of haggis, vegetarian haggis and black pudding a year and then we, we sold the shop, we built the haggis factory we're now in, which uh, allegedly is the world's first haggis, dedicated haggis facility. And as I said, we were doing 235 tons of haggis. By then we'd built up a, a huge domestic haggis business, selling lots of haggis into the southeast of England. Uh, inside the M25 was 
was where we'd really made a name for our haggis. And then when we were in the in the, the new factory, we started picking up some big major retailers. So we, we picked up uh, Tesco. We picked up the UK arm of Costco. Uh, we picked up Waitrose. And these big retailers came to us because haggis was, was an emerging market. They'd always sold haggis, but they'd only... In 1996, there'd only really been one major player, but then we were emerging as, as a, a significant player in, in the haggis category. And where we are now, we supply all the, the UK major uh, retailers. We do some export into Europe. We supply Marks and Spencers solely for haggis and black pudding. We do a lot in hotels and restaurants, wholesaling, food service, pubs, restaurants. So we're, we've got a very wide portfolio of of customers, and I said earlier in 1996 we were doing 235 tons. Tail end of last year we've done over 1,500 tons, and we now employ about 75 people. Um, and when we first moved to the factory in 96, there was only about a dozen of us. So we, we've really grown, and we've just continued to stay true to our values, which is we only make really tasty products. Joe and I believe if 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 we don't like it, we ain't going to make it because um, that's always <laughs> that's always stood us in good stead. I I would say so. You touched on in your portfolio the hotel and pub industry in those areas, uh, which brings to mind that 2015, of course, is the year of food and drink in Scotland. That's right. That's the annual theme that's set by Visit Scotland for tourism. I sampled haggis, of course, as a tourist for the first time. How important is the tourism industry to persons and companies like yourself, haggis producers, that people come to Scotland and want and and seek out to sample uh, haggis while they're there? How important is that segment of the marketplace? The tourism market is very important to Scotland per se. You know, we're, we are relying on people coming to Scotland and understanding Scottish food and drink, um, food exports are a huge part of the Scottish economy, especially um, smoked salmon, shortbread biscuits, whiskey. Uh, these are huge exports. Haggis is a wee bit more complicated to export because it's a manufactured meat product, but we are certainly um, trying to push the door on, on haggis exports to um, North America. Into Europe is is more convenient, but it's it's about getting people to come to Scotland and try haggis because we know that when people are thinking about going on holiday to, to Scotland, they are, where can I go and try whiskey? Where can I go and try haggis? Where can I go and try, you know, seeing how kilts get made? They're wanting to understand all these things because haggis, for example, is, is something that appeals to them and they want to know, they want to know more about it. So our job is to make haggis available and really tasty that they go away with with a great impression because a lot of people are very shy in coming forward as to actually trying haggis. They've heard a lot about it. They either have a mixed opinion that I've heard it, but I don't think I'm going to like it, or I'm going to really try this stuff because I've, I've heard a whole lot of rubbish about it and I want to make my own mind up. So our job is to make sure that there's lots of really tasty and readily available haggis for all our friends that are going to come and come to Scotland and try it for the first time and that they go away feeling happy about venturing into the world of haggis. 
I fell into that second group. I, I had heard all the rubbish about it. It was on my bucket list, if you will, of things to do in Scotland uh, because it is one of those iconic products. And and it's it's like going to Scotland and you can't go to Scotland and not go to Loch Ness. I'm sorry, you just can't do it. And, and the same thing with haggis. I felt like I couldn't go to Scotland and not uh, Scotland rather and not try haggis. But therein lies the problem that you're, you've touched on is as an American, for example, I come to Scotland, I sampled haggis, found out that it's delicious, that I quite enjoy it. I would love to be able to eat it on a, on a regular basis here in the United States. And I can't because there is a longstanding, I think it dates back to 1971, ban on the importation of, of haggis. And that's because of the issue of the ingredients, especially the sheep's lung. It's not approved by our Food and Drug Administration for Human Consumption. Now, I know there has been uh, recent efforts to get that ban lifted. In fact, just last year, I think uh, the UK's uh, Environmental Secretary, Owen Patterson, was here in the States and had some talks with the Obama administration about getting the ban lifted. Where is McSween Haggis on, on all of that? And are you involved in the efforts to try and lift that importation ban? Because clearly opening up the U.S. market and perhaps other worldwide markets would be a tremendous boon to a producer of haggis like yourself. Yeah, it's funny. The, <laughs> the Owen the Patterson thing came from a meeting that I was at with him um, at the Royal Halland Show, which is the UK's largest royal agricultural show in in Britain. And uh, I was at this meeting about breaking down barriers for export. And he said, right, anybody else want to tell me what they're struggling with and how I can help? I went, yeah, I want to get haggis to America. And he right, took his notice. He says, right, let me, let me deal with that. And there you go. You've heard it yourself that Owen Patterson was in the States trying to show Obama where he's going wrong and he's food and drink that should be getting imported into into America. We are trying to do everything we can. There is work happening at the moment on importing uh, lamb and pork. They've got pork went into, I think it was Canada last year. Some lamb either gone into America or Canada this year. Beef, I never see coming off the band, personally, for lots of reasons. Um, Throat and mouth, BSE, I, I don't see beef coming off the list, I might be surprised. So prime rib, let's call it prime rib, so legs, shoulders, racks of chops, that stuff is a bit more easy to export because if you see one lamb in a field, you can trace that far more easily than bits of lamb that make up a haggis. Let's be really blunt about this. So prime rib, I think, is further down the line for exports. Manufactured meats will be the next thing they're going to work on, but to get all this prime rib exported, there's mock audits happening at the moment where these potential manufacturing facilities and slaughterhouses are going through these audits to make them audit ready for your drug and food administration to to come in and check that they are ready to export. So that's kind of where we are. Haggis to North America might be... 2017, maybe 2018, I can't see it really happening any quicker. It's not that we're not doing anything about it. It's just there's an awful lot of red tape. And unless they can successfully do it with prime rib of pork and lamb, it's never going to happen for haggis. So there's a, there's a lot at stake. I guess I'm wondering, does the fact that there is an increase in tourism, that people do come to Scotland, taste haggis, sample it, decide that they like it, they come home and that creates a demand for it. And yet it's a demand that can't be filled. So is that an element in this process of getting that importation ban lifted? And would that does that help that process? 
Um, I, yes, I, I guess, I guess it def everything helps. Everything helps. But it's red tape. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, you know, if, if a lot, you've got a lot of people that go to Cuba and smoke Cuban cigars, but is that what helps them get Cuban cigars back into humidors in, in America? I don't think so. And it's a crude example. So, yes, everything will help to try and get haggis import into America, but it's, it's the United States Food and Drug Administration that are the ones that are having to do the work and, and recognize that, yeah, we've had a ban on haggis longer than I've been alive because I was born in 1972. Um, okay, I, I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> I didn't need to hear that. I got out of high school in 1971. We could have, we could have dismissed how long, <laughs> when you were born. <laughs> you know, but, but it's, to show you, it's to show you how old that ban is. It's older than me. Yes. Um, they're not going to just roll over and have their tummies tickled because U.S. citizens are going to Scotland and need a lot of haggis. They need they need the evidence that we can show America that we can make great, safe, tasty food that is that is fit for export. And and if and if the the United Kingdom as a, as a manufacturer can can give America the evidence. That we can export food safely, that we will not disgrace ourselves by having some sort of food scare, then yeah, I think haggis genuinely deserves to be exported to America, that people can buy it online and we can ship it in cool boxes. And that, you know, wherever you are sitting now, whether you're in your ranch in Texas, you can buy a haggis and go, I know I can eat this with confidence. That's the job of food and drink manufacturers, especially in Scotland, um, but as a nation of, of food manufacturers. Well, if I can add my my vote, uh, as it were, I would certainly hope that, that, that what you're saying is true and that we are able to enjoy fine haggis here in the United States, certainly sooner than later. If I were to ask you to leave us with one thought about haggis, something we should know, a way that we should try it. Uh, those who have not, of course, I'm speaking to. What would be the one thing you would you would leave us with that uh, you would want um, the world to know about uh, haggis and especially about McSween haggis? All I would say to your audience is don't knock it until you've tried it. Um, it's, it's like that Dr. We used to get a Dr. Pepper advert. What's the <laughs> worst thing that can happen? And and it's true. I I say to people, would you like to? We're at a show. Would you like to try some haggis? Oh, I don't like haggis. Oh, why don't you like haggis? I don't know. I just won't like haggis. Oh, so you haven't tried haggis? No, I haven't tried haggis. So how do you know you won't like it? I just know I won't like it. Approach haggis with an open mind. If you think it's spicy mince or spicy ground beef, and it's it's tasty, it's versatile, and it's great for you, just try it. As always, my thanks to James McSween of McSween Haggis for helping us to better understand the iconic Scottish dish of haggis. I can only echo his words when he said, don't knock it till you've tried it. And I had a wee chuckle at his analogy to Scott's trying Dr. Pepper. As a native Texan, I was weaned on that iconic Texas soft drink. So to my friends and listeners in Scotland about Dr. Pepper, I would also say, don't knock it till you've tried it. I'm Glenn Moyer, and until next time, Topolave, I guess Alapa Gabra. 
Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. Learn more on our website at www.glenlmoyer.com. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening.